Welcome back to The Good, The Bad and The Bogus. This is David Free and this is the second part of my two-part podcast about the trials of Oscar Wilde. As a quick reminder of what I talked about last time, I left off in early April of 1895. Oscar Wilde had just sued the Marquess of Queensbury for libel and the suit had fallen apart when it became clear that Queensbury had assembled a parade of young male witnesses who were ready to testify that they had committed shocking acts with Oscar Wilde. The sequel now seemed inevitable. Wilde was going to be arrested, and he was going to be put on trial for gross indecency. But he still had a chance to catch the last train to Dover and flee to France. We left Wilde in the Cadogan Hotel in London. His suitcase was half-packed. His friends were urging him to get a move on, but a strange inertia seemed to have descended on him. Finally, when it was clear that he had missed the last train to Dover, Wilde said, It's too late. The train has gone. I shall stay and do my sentence, whatever it is. I said in episode one of this podcast that there's something spooky about certain parts of the Oscar Wilde story, and when I said that I was thinking of moments like this one. Wilde was sleepwalking towards disaster, and some mysterious force seemed to deprive him of the will to save himself. Even he didn't seem to understand what that force was. Why is it one runs to one's ruin, he asked later on, when it was all over. Why has destruction such a fascination? Why, when one stands on the pinnacle, must one throw oneself down? No one knows, but things are so. I was made for destruction. Many years earlier, long before his career had ended its slow-motion train wreck phase, Wilde had talked about his fascination with the life of Jesus Christ. He had said that Christ was history's supreme artist. His entire life is the most wonderful of poems, Wilde had said. He is just like a work of art himself. It'd be going too far to say that Wilde, when he remained in England to meet his fate, was consciously choosing to echo the career of Jesus. But at an unconscious level, Wilde seemed to understand that if his own life was going to be his greatest work of art, then the artwork couldn't end with him slinking away from his accusers. That just wouldn't do as the final act of a well-made drama. He would have to stay and face the music. It was almost as if Wilde realised that his career as a writer was now all over, but that he still had a chance, and maybe even an obligation, to stay and live out a story whose full meaning wouldn't be appreciated until decades after his death. Everything that happens to me is symbolic and irrevocable, he would say. So Wilde was still sitting there in his hotel room when the police turned up to serve their warrant. He was arrested and was denied bail. The next morning, the London newspapers saluted the Marquess of Queensbury for having knocked Wilde off his perch. One paper announced that England owed Queensbury a deep debt of gratitude for, quote, destroying the high priest of the decadence, the obscene imposter whose prominence has been a social outrage ever since he transferred from Trinity Dublin to Oxford his vices, his follies, and his vanities has been thoroughly exposed at last. Wilde's name was swiftly removed from the hoardings of the theatres where his latest plays were still being performed, and before long those plays were shut down altogether. 
Wilde's erasure from society had already begun. And the rest of it would happen very fast. Wilde had launched his failed libel action on April the 3rd. By April the 26th, he was in the dock himself, standing trial for gross indecency. Again, Wilde was brilliant in the witness box. The prosecutor said to him, I wish to call your attention to the style of your correspondence with Lord Alfred Douglas. I am ready, Wilde replied. I am never ashamed of the style of my writings. The prosecutor read out one of Wilde's letters and said, Do you think an ordinarily constituted being would address such expressions to a younger man? And Wilde said, I am not, happily I think, an ordinarily constituted being. At another point, the prosecutor asked Wilde to explain what was meant by the phrase, the love that dare not speak its name. In a way, the question was unfair, since it wasn't even Wilde's phrase. It was Bosey's. But Wilde's long reply to this question showed how superb he could be off the cuff, and it has since become justly famous. Here's what he said. The love that dare not speak its name in this century is such a great affection of an elder for a younger man as there was between David and Jonathan, such as Plato made the very basis of his philosophy, and such as you find in the sonnets of Michelangelo and Shakespeare. It is that deep spiritual affection that is as pure as it is perfect. It is in this century misunderstood, so much misunderstood, that it may be described as the love that dare not speak its name. And on account of it, I am placed where I am now. It is beautiful. It is fine. It is the noblest form of affection. There is nothing unnatural about it. It is intellectual, and it repeatedly exists between an elder and a younger man when the elder has intellect and the younger man has all the joy, hope, and glamour of life before him. That it should be so, the world does not understand. The world mocks at it and sometimes puts one in the pillory for it. When Wilde finished this speech, there was applause from the public gallery, and some of his friends even began to believe that the jury would find him not guilty. Wilde's speech was a magnificent defence of same-sex love, but of course it wasn't a fully honest defence of it, because in truth, his love for Alfred Douglas wasn't purely intellectual. It was physical too. We'd be asking a bit much, though, if we would wish that Wilde had defended his sexual identity in the witness box as robustly as that same identity can be defended now. We have to remember that he was on trial for the crime of committing homosexual acts, and that if he was found guilty, he was going to be destroyed. So if he'd spoken the full truth on the stand, he would have been inviting the jury to send him straight to jail. Wilde's society forced him to be a liar, but within the limits that his culture imposed on him, he was magnificently brave. Unfortunately, Wilde's trial had its sordid side too. Some of the details are painful to talk about, because Wilde deserves to be remembered for the wonderful things he did with language, and not, say, for the condition he left his bedsheets in when he stayed at certain London hotels. Unfortunately, though, the state of Wilde's hotel bedding became a major issue at his trial. A chambermaid at the Savoy Hotel testified that when Wilde was staying there, 
His sheets were stained in a peculiar way. What she meant was that they were stained with lubricant and with fecal matter. From the moment this revelation came out at the trial, Wilde was always going to be a goner, not just with the jury, but with the general public. His contemporaries, who found all bodily transactions disgusting, were scandalised by this detail, although a striking number of them somehow seemed to be aware that stains of this kind were a typical byproduct of buggery. The judge, in his instructions to the jury, called the sheet testimony the most unpleasant part of this whole unpleasant case. For his part, the manager of the Savoy Hotel was mortified that his chambermaids had spilled the beans about Wilde's sheets. The way the manager saw it, the state of a guest's room was privileged information, and a good hotelier should, quote, keep his own counsel. Far more to the point, though, Wilde's biographers have since established that anal sex wasn't Oscar Wilde's bag anyway. He was into quite a few other gay practices, but he wasn't into that one. So it seems likely that Wilde himself wasn't responsible for those notorious stains. It's more probable that they were generated by Bosey in Congress with somebody other than Wilde. And Wilde himself later hinted that this was indeed the case. But of course he was unable to say so on the stand without, so to speak, dropping Bosey right in it. Despite the weight of the evidence against Wilde, the jury was unable to reach a unanimous verdict of guilty. Accounts vary as to how many of the jury's 12 members held out for a not guilty verdict. Some accounts say it was two jurors, some say just one. In any case, there was a hung jury, and it was immediately announced that Oscar Wilde would be prosecuted again. The Crown wasn't about to give up, even though some people thought it was high time that it did. Edward Carson, the Irish-born barrister who had skewered Wilde at the libel trial, urged the Solicitor General to drop the case. Can you not let up on the fellow now? Carson said. He has suffered a great deal. But the Solicitor General ploughed ahead. Between trials, Wilde was granted bail, and his friends just managed to scrape together the required £5,000. So Wilde had one last chance to flee to Paris, and once again his friends and his wife told him he was mad not to go. And yet again, Wilde refused to save himself. His life really does begin to feel like a Shakespearean tragedy at this point. Wilde reminds you of Hamlet, refusing for the umpteenth time to get it over with and kill the king. So Wilde remained in England, and he willingly went to trial one last time. The evidence was as scandalous as it had been the first time, and a guilty verdict was pretty much inevitable. During his summing up, Wilde's lawyer appealed to the jury to return a verdict of not guilty, so that Wilde could, quote, live among us a life of honour and repute, and give in the maturity of his genius gifts to our literature of which he has given only the promise in his early youth. But it was no good. The jury returned a guilty verdict, and when the judge passed sentence, he showed Wilde absolutely no mercy. He gave him the maximum sentence, two years with hard labour. In my judgment, he said, that is totally inadequate for such a case as this. 
It is no use for me to address you, he said to Wilde. People who can do these things must be dead to all sense of shame. Wilde had been mentally prepared for a one-year sentence, but the passing of the maximum sentence devastated him. He stammered, My God, my God, and I, may I say nothing, my Lord? The judge dismissed him with a contemptuous wave of the hand. Wilde swayed and started to collapse, and the warders grabbed him before he could hit the floor. And that was that. There was no right to appeal. When the verdict was announced, wrote W.B. Yeats in his autobiography, the harlots in the street outside danced upon the pavement. And the harlots weren't the only ones who celebrated Wilde's downfall with a revolting amount of glee. When Wilde was convicted, people seemed to go out of their way to denounce his so-called crimes in the most strident possible terms, almost as if by expressing their disgust about Wilde, they could prove and advertise their own relative virtue. Judging from the sorts of things people said about Wilde's crimes at the time, you'd have thought the man had chopped up his mother and eaten the remains. This is the worst case I have ever tried, said the judge at Wilde's second trial. After Wilde's death, the New York Times wrote that, quote, the evidence at Wilde's trial shocked the civilized world and covered him with disgrace which it was not possible for him to outlive. This is the way that mainstream papers like the New York Times, a little more than a hundred years ago, used to talk about something that we now not only don't think of as a crime, but actually welcome and celebrate as a form of love. It almost makes you wonder if there's anything the New York Times is saying right now that people will look back on in a hundred years and say, boy, did those people get it wrong. As for Wilde's sentence, we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that two years in prison was a negligible punishment. Richard Elman, in his biography of Wilde, gives some horrifying details about the physical and mental torments that were inflicted on Wilde in prison. In those days, the penal system meant business. There was no bullshit about reform. The purpose of a hard labour sentence was to punish, to humiliate and degrade and reduce you to the status of an animal. The image of Wilde, the art-worshipping dandy, in prison is painful to contemplate. It's a jarring non-sequitur, which says something very ugly about the contradictions of his era. For the first month of his term, Wilde was forced to sleep on a wooden board as a standard form of punishment. After that month was over, he was entitled to earn himself a thin mattress to put on top of the wooden board, as long as he performed his work assignments to the required standard. The author of The Importance of Being Earnest was put to work picking oakum, which meant pulling apart old ropes into their constituent fibres. He was allowed to walk in the yard for an hour a day with the other prisoners, but they were strictly forbidden to talk to one another. Like all new inmates, Wilde suffered terribly from insomnia, malnutrition and dysentery. And dysentery, as Richard Elman graphically records, was a wicked ailment to have in a cell where the toilet facilities consisted of a small bucket. One day during the exercise hour, one of the other prisoners recognised Wilde in the yard. The man came up behind him and whispered, Oscar Wilde, I am sorry for you. It's harder for the likes of you than it is for the likes of us. Wilde was so moved by this small act of humanity 
that he thought he was going to faint. He replied, No, my friend, we all suffer alike. Wilde had been in prison for six weeks at that point, and these were the first words he spoke to another prisoner. From that day, Wilde said, I no longer had a desire to kill myself. He still worried that he was going mad, though. He was so physically weak that one day he collapsed and hit his head on a concrete floor, rupturing his eardrum. He spent the next two weeks in the infirmary. His ear continued to ache and bleed, and some biographers think that this untreated head injury helped to cause his early death five years later. One thing that especially distressed Wilde about prison was that there were children as young as 12 in there too, who were subject to the same routines and punishments as the other prisoners, including solitary confinement. The cruelty that is practiced by day and night on children in English prisons is incredible, he wrote after his release in a letter to an English newspaper. As for his own children, Wilde became terrified by the idea that he would never be allowed to see them again. I don't care to live if I am so degraded that I am unfit to be with my own child, he wrote during his first year behind bars. Wilde was especially fond of his older son, Cyril, who was nine years old when Wilde was sent to jail. It would be to me a sorrow beyond words, he wrote, if he was never allowed to see Cyril again. I always was a good father to both my children. I loved them dearly and was dearly loved by them and Cyril was my friend. Those are probably the saddest words Oscar Wilde would ever write. Cyril was my friend. Because the outcome that Wilde dreaded did end up happening. He never did see either of his sons again. Is there on earth a crime so terrible that in punishment of it a father can be prevented from seeing his children, he said after his release. Unfortunately, Wilde's society believed that there was such a crime and that Wilde deserved everything he got. To rub it in, young Cyril didn't end up outliving his father by too many years. In the first year of World War I, Cyril was killed at the age of 29 while fighting in France. When Wilde was in prison, he veered between despair and hope. Sometimes he allowed himself to believe that he would be able to re-establish his career when he got out, but at low moments he understood what would turn out to be true. It was all over. After a year of imprisonment, he wrote to the Home Secretary petitioning for an early release. The petitioner knows only too well that his career as a dramatist and writer is ended, Wilde wrote, and his name is blotted from the scroll of English literature, never to be replaced, that his children cannot bear that name again, and that an obscure life in some remote country is in store for him. But Wilde feared for his sanity, and he begged for an early release, so that he wouldn't, quote, pass directly from the common jail to the common lunatic asylum. But the petition was rejected, and Wilde was forced to serve out his full term. Fortunately, his second year inside would turn out to be marginally more bearable than the first. An enlightened warden bent the rules in Wilde's favour and let him have access to writing materials. Wilde set about composing a long letter to Alfred Douglas. The letter wound up running to about 50,000 words, which is around the length of a short book. 
It was later published under the title De Profundis, which means From the Depths. Although the full text of what Wilde wrote didn't become available until 1962, because some passages couldn't safely be published until certain members of the Queensbury family, including Bosey, were dead. De Profundis is a remarkable document. It's by far the most moving stretch of prose ever published under Wilde's name. Wilde later claimed that he wrote it when half mad with hunger. No doubt he did, but hunger made Wilde a more bitterly effective prose writer than he had ever been before. The letter is hair-raisingly candid. In it, Wilde mercilessly dissects Bosey's character and exposes its many ugly defects. And he's equally brutal about his own shortcomings too. The style of the letter is stripped back. There are none of Wilde's usual mannerisms. It sounds far more modern than anything else he ever wrote. In fact, the letter is so bleak and so raw that you have to be in the right mood to read it. In one of its most famous passages, Wilde describes the lowest point of his incarceration, which occurred on the afternoon he was transferred from Pentonville Prison to Reading Jail on a public train. From two o'clock till half past two on that day, Wilde writes, I had to stand on the centre platform at Clapham Junction in convict dress and handcuffed for the world to look at. I had been taken out of the hospital ward without a moment's notice being given to me. Of all possible objects, I was the most grotesque. When people saw me, they laughed. Each train as it came up swelled the audience. Nothing could exceed their amusement. That was, of course, before they knew who I was. As soon as they had been informed, they laughed still more. For half an hour, I stood there in the grey November rain, surrounded by a jeering mob. For a year after that was done to me, I wept every day at the same hour and for the same space of time. As unsparing as that account of his humiliation is, there was one detail about the ordeal at Clapham Junction that Wilde didn't mention in the letter, although he did mention it to a few friends in conversation. Apparently, when one of the onlookers on the platform worked out who Wilde was, he walked up to him and spat in his face. It isn't hard to guess why Wilde left this detail out of his letter. The memory of that crowning indignity must have been so painful that he just couldn't bring himself to write it down. But even with that detail left out, it's clear enough that this scene on the railway platform represented rock bottom for Wilde. No doubt because it felt like an exact inversion of the adulation that had greeted him at his curtain calls only a year or so before. It's as if the English public had been waiting for an excuse to turn on him and start spitting on him instead of showering him with applause. Wilde was an outsider, an Irishman, a smartass. He crapped on about art and beauty and spiritual love between men. And finally he went a step too far and the public had an excuse to get the goons rodeo underway. There's something biblical about that scene on the platform at Clapham Junction. It's as if somebody had to volunteer to be the era's chief scapegoat. Somebody had to reveal how ugly and violent and hateful Victorian society really was under its veneer of genteelism and moral hygiene. And Wilde wound up being that man. 
People nowadays do not understand what cruelty is, Wilde wrote after his release. They regard it as a sort of terrible medieval passion. But ordinary cruelty is simply stupidity. It is the entire want of imagination. It is the result in our days of stereotyped systems of hard and fast rules and of stupidity. End quote. Any moral system that denies or ignores the realities of human nature will always end up being stupid and cruel. And Victorian morality was especially stupid and cruel because its denial of human reality was so blatant. My favourite example of the idiocy of Victorian moral standards comes from Wilde's rather dull older brother Willie, who said after Wilde was convicted, Oscar was not a man of bad character. You could have trusted him with a woman anywhere. Oscar Wilde was released from prison in May 1897, almost two years to the day after his incarceration. On the night of his release, he sailed for France and never set foot on British soil again. His relocation to France has euphemistically been called a self-exile, but really it was a forced exile. England had made it very clear that it was done with Wilde. Even in northern France, he still wasn't far enough away from England for comfort. For a short time, he tried living in the coastal town of Dieppe, but there were too many holidaying Englishmen around, and they kept recognising Wilde in cafes and restaurants, and kept asking the management to throw him out. When old friends saw him in the street, they snubbed him. If Wilde had hoped that two years' hard labour was going to be the totality of his punishment, he soon found out that he was wrong. The cruelty of a prison sentence starts when you come out, he wrote. So Wilde left Dieppe and holed up in a small French village called Berneval. He told his few remaining friends that he would write a play there and would show his face in Paris only when he was once again a successful playwright. Within a couple of months of his release, he had completed a long narrative poem, which he called The Ballad of Reading Jail. To get the poem published in England, Wilde had to resort to a publisher who generally published pornography. Later on, when he used the same firm to publish the text of The Importance of Being Earnest, no major English newspaper would review it. But the ballad was published anonymously, and it sold fairly well. On the title page, the poem's author was identified only as C-3-3, meaning cell block C, landing 3, cell 3. This was what Wilde's name had been in Reading Jail, C-3-3. The poem got some decent reviews, but again there was plenty of Victorian hypocrisy in play, because although all the reviewers were well aware that Wilde was the poem's true author, None of them had the honesty to say so in their reviews. Like all of Oscar Wilde's poetry, The Ballad of Reading Jail has not aged all that well. W.H. Auden once observed that Wilde was, quote, totally lacking in a poetic voice of his own. What he wrote was an imitation of poetry in general. As for The Ballad of Reading Jail, Auden said that a reader who knew nothing about the poem's backstory would, quote, never guessed that the author had been in prison himself, only that he had read The Ancient Mariner. That was harsh of Auden, but it was also fair. In fact, it's a brilliant way of summarising 
Wilde's limitations as a poet. The tone and rhythm of the Ballad of Reading Jail are hopelessly out of whack with the awful realities that the poem is meant to be about. If you want to get a proper sense of what prison was really like for Oscar Wilde, you'd be well advised to skip the ballad and read De Profundis instead. The ballad was the only major work that Wilde completed after his release from prison. He never did get anywhere with that play that he'd promised to write. He was done. He was like a shot fighter. Something is killed in me, he told a friend. I feel no desire to write. I am unconscious of power. My first year in prison destroyed my body and soul. In truth, it wasn't just prison that destroyed Oscar Wilde. It was also the social rejection he met with when he came out. There's a line in one of his plays about society. To be in it is merely a bore, but to be out of it is simply a tragedy. When Wilde wrote that line, he was in no position to know just how much of a tragedy it would be for a man like himself to be cast out of society. Wilde wasn't the kind of writer who could function in a garret. He needed an audience. He needed society in every sense of the word. And to be rejected by it was a form of death. I have lost the joy of writing, he admitted. My life cannot be patched up. There is a doom on it. Neither to myself nor others am I any longer a joy. Among other things, Wilde had lost the inclination to be funny. A funny person needs an audience that's ready and willing to be amused. In an atmosphere of hostility and bad faith, comedy dies. And an Oscar Wilde who was no longer funny was half dead already. It's difficult for me to laugh at life as I used to, he said. When he revisited the importance of being earnest to prepare it for publication, he was astounded by how ready he had once been to treat life as a joke. It was extraordinary reading the play over, he wrote to a friend, how I used to toy with that tiger life. Through intermediaries, Wilde begged his wife to let him see his sons again. She stalled him, but she seemed to be coming around to the idea of some kind of reconciliation. But before anything could be arranged, Wilde received news that she had suddenly died. And that was that. His wife's family closed ranks and made sure that Wilde would be granted no access to his sons. My way back to hope and a new life ends in her grave, he wrote. So without having written his promised play, Wilde left Berneval and moved to Paris, where he took up residence in a seedy hotel. It was a kind of surrender. One day his old friend André Gide saw him sitting at a café, writing about the encounter later. Gide recalled that Wilde was well-dressed, but that his clothes were dirty and frayed. I was going to sit opposite him in such a way as to turn my back to the passers-by, Gide remembered. But Wilde noticed this movement, which he took as an impulse of absurd shame, and said, I'll sit here near me, pointing to a chair near his side. I am so much alone just now. Gide asked him what he was doing in Paris. Hadn't he vowed not to show his face there until he'd written another play? But before he could finish his question, Gide writes, Wilde interrupted me, laid his hand on mine, looked at me with his most sorrowful look, and said, You must not be angry with one who has been crushed. 
Not long afterwards, Wilde fell terminally ill with meningitis. Accounts differ about the cause of the illness. Richard Elman says it was an effect of Wilde's syphilis. Others ascribe it to the head injury he sustained in prison. Either way, Wilde was dying. When he met an old friend in the street, he said, My wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. One or the other of us has to go. Wilde died in November 1900, a little over three years after his release from prison. In one sense, there was something deeply futile about the last years of Wilde's life. He might as well have spared himself the prison sentence and fled to France on the eve of his trial. The end result would have been the same. Exile and ignominy and social rejection. If he'd known he was going to receive that punishment either way, Wilde could have done himself a favour and skipped the intervening two years of hard labour. If he had, he would almost certainly have lived much longer. On the other hand, the story of Wilde's life wouldn't have such importance for the rest of us if he hadn't gone to prison and suffered his full punishment. For the fifth act to have its tragic resonance, the exile had to be preceded by the martyrdom. The critic G. Wilson Knight said something chilling about Wilde's life. He said, Honesty will not deny that it would have been our loss if Wilde's life had been other than it was. To us, his actions, together with their consequences, are extraordinarily valuable. They are, at least, tragically justified. The justification was that when Wilde went down, he took the whole rotten edifice of Victorian morality down with him. In other words, Wilde suffered so that others wouldn't have to. Knight developed this point by going back to the strange parallels between Wilde's life and Christ's. Such men may appear to embrace their martyrdom, says Knight, but it remains a martyrdom, a crucifixion, a self-exhibition in agony and shame. The shame may be of the essence. At the least, it shatters all the pseudo-dignities and masks of our lying civilization. End quote. In other words, Oscar Wilde was like a soldier who threw himself face down on the barbed wire so that everybody else could move forward over his body. As Richard Elman writes near the end of his biography, if he was to be immolated, then so must be his age. Reveal him as pederast, reveal his society as hypocrite. End quote. That said, it has to be added that Wilde's society didn't get the point of his martyrdom straight away. The moral of his story took decades to sink in. At the time, even some of Wilde's closest friends didn't get it. Just before Wilde's second trial, his great friend Frank Harris was hatching a plan to help Wilde escape from England on a yacht. Wilde said to him with some surprise, You talk with passion and conviction as if I were innocent. But you are innocent, aren't you? said Harris. No, said Wilde. I thought you knew that all along. To his credit, this revelation didn't make a difference to the butch and very heterosexual Harris, who was one of the handful of people who had the integrity to stick with Wilde after his fall. Harris later wrote a book called Oscar Wilde, His Life and Confessions, in which he recalled a conversation that he had with Wilde not long before Wilde died. They were talking about homosexuality. What you call vice, Frank, is not vice, Wilde said. 
it is as good to me as it was to Caesar, Alexander, Michelangelo and Shakespeare. It is disgraceful to punish it. Frank Harris couldn't bring himself to agree. He pointed out to Wilde that homosexual practices had been, quote, condemned by 100 generations of the most civilized races of mankind. But Wilde shook his head. All that, he said, was, quote, mere prejudice of the unlettered. I hold to my conviction. The best minds even now don't condemn us, and the world is becoming more tolerant. You get a sense here of just how far ahead of his time Oscar Wilde was, and of what a large paradigm shift still had to take place before his radical position could become the new normal. These days, no civilized person would disagree with Wilde's position. Homosexuality isn't a vice, and it's disgraceful to punish it. But at the time, Frank Harris still thought it was disgraceful to practice it. He thought his friend's sexuality was a vice, and he didn't mind telling him that to his face. And Harris, it's worth repeating, was one of the enlightened ones. He was far enough ahead of his time to help Wilde out than to stand by him, but he wasn't far enough ahead of his time to grasp that Wilde had done nothing wrong. To another friend, Wilde said, I have no doubt we shall win, but the road is long and red with monstrous martyrdoms. Nothing but the repeal of the Criminal Law Amendment Act will do any good. That is the essential. Wilde said that in 1898, but it wasn't until 1967 that homosexuality was finally decriminalised in England. In the meantime, there had been plenty of additional martyrs. In 1952, the great mathematician Alan Turing was prosecuted for breaking the same law that Wilde had broken. During the Second World War, Turing had spearheaded Britain's effort to crack Nazi Germany's Enigma Code. Some people have argued that the Nazis might have won the war if it weren't for the efforts of Turing and his team. And Turing's country repaid him by putting him on trial for gross indecency less than a decade after the war's end. He was convicted, and then he was given a choice. Either he could go to prison, or he could submit to hormone treatment to reduce his libido. He chose the hormone treatment, which effectively amounted to a form of chemical castration. The results were grotesque, and two years after his conviction, Alan Turing killed himself by eating an apple laced with cyanide. So Oscar Wilde was right. The road was very long, and there were more martyrdoms along the way. But progress did eventually happen. Today at Clapham Junction, there's a rainbow plaque at the site where Wilde was subjected to that terrible public humiliation. The plaque gives the date and time of Wilde's ordeal. November the 20th, 1895, from 2 o'clock till half past 2. Our current civilization prides itself on the fact that it no longer tolerates things like that, and so it should. Thankfully, what happened to Wilde at Clapham Junction will never be allowed to happen again. Not in exactly that way, anyway. But things that are fairly similar to Wilde's ordeal do still routinely happen, because although the law has changed for the better since then, human nature hasn't. Human beings still have a bad tendency to seek out scapegoats. We still like it when we get a chance to take part in some ritual vilification or pile-on, so we can demonstrate our own moral superiority to the object of loathing. And we still like to seek safety in numbers, because as long as we're the ones doing the spitting, 
that means we're not the ones getting spat on. If we want Oscar Wilde's story to remain relevant and useful to us, and I think we should, one thing we should do is ask ourselves whose side we think we would have been on if we'd been around when Wilde's society put him in the stocks. Would we have leapt to his defence, or would we have thought with the herd and joined the pylon? If we'd been on the platform at Clapham Junction, would we or wouldn't we have been part of that jeering crowd? If we want to answer that question seriously, we need to remind ourselves that almost nobody had the moral courage to stand by Wilde at the time. It was a lonely position to be in. So we can't all be right if we all think we would have been part of that very small minority that stood by Wilde. Another thing we need to remember, and this is a slightly tricky thing for us to wrap our heads around, is that the people who crucified Oscar Wilde for his acts of gross indecency didn't believe they were doing anything bad or wrong. On the contrary, they were firmly convinced that they were morally in the right and that they were protecting vulnerable people from being corrupted and preyed upon. Take, for example, Henry Labouchere, the author of that legal amendment that ruined Wilde. You might imagine that Labouchere was an all-round reactionary and bigot, but it turns out that he wasn't. In fact, in several other ways, Labouchere was politically ahead of his time. He unsuccessfully campaigned to expand the law against cruelty to animals. He was an anti-imperialist who criticised Britain's adventures in Rhodesia and opposed the Boer War. But he was firmly convinced that homosexuality was immoral and a crime against nature. And almost every other right-thinking subject of Queen Victoria's believed that too. This is a point that can't be made too often. The do-gooders and wowsers of the past didn't know they were backward fools. They considered themselves to be progressives. They thought they were scoring a solid victory for the good guys when they dedicated themselves to criminalising things that should have been none of the state's business. And of course, the participants in today's online and offline moral pylons tend to be pretty sure that they're in the right too. Think of the recent moral panics about Woody Allen and Louis C.K. and Aziz Ansari and J.K. Rowling. I don't want to suggest that these cases are all the same. Each one has its particular details and merits. But in all these cases, the easy thing to do is join the chorus of condemnation. And the hard thing to do is stop and think about the fine print. At one level, of course, it would be obscene to suggest that what's been done to J.K. Rowling, say, is in any way comparable to what was done to Oscar Wilde. J.K. Rowling isn't in prison. Her opinions aren't against the law, or at least they aren't yet. Still, there's something about Rowling's treatment at the hands of the online mob that reminds me of that scene at Clapham Junction. Jeremy Bentham said that fanaticism can't be stopped by conscience because it has already pressed conscience into its service. The guy who spat in Wilde's face at Clapham Junction wasn't stopped by his conscience because he was acting on behalf of his conscience. He almost certainly believed that Oscar Wilde was a dangerous threat to public morals. Given that Oscar Wilde was a monster, as every upstanding person thought he was, spitting in his face was the right thing to do. In the same way, the Twitter vigilante who responds to J.K. Rowling's views about the trans issue by threatening to rape her is unlikely to wonder if he's doing anything wrong, because he knows for a fact that Rowling is abhorrent 
and that his own cause is right and just. But anyway, it would be wrong to end a podcast about Oscar Wilde on a note of acrimony. We should never forget the terrible things that other people did to Wilde, but that doesn't mean we should lose sight of all the wonderful things that Wilde did himself. We should keep going back to his work, and we should keep reminding ourselves of how alive so much of it still is. Above all, we should remember how very funny Wilde was. He's one of the few pre-20th century writers whose humour remains fresh enough today to make you laugh out loud. This is the man who described the English country gentleman galloping after a fox as the unspeakable in full pursuit of the uneatable. I said earlier on that Wilde might have made a good tweeter if he was still alive today. I'm not sure what he would have thought about podcasting, but he certainly said one thing that can serve as a useful motto for any solo podcaster. I like to do all the talking myself, he said. It saves time and it prevents arguments. And that's all for my podcast about the trials of Oscar Wilde. I'll be back with another episode soon. In the meantime, if you enjoy the show and you want to support what I do, there are several ways you can do that. You can rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or if you want to support the show directly, you can go to paypal.me slash goodbadbogus or patreon.com slash goodbadbogus. Until next time, I'm David Free, and you've been listening to The Good, The Bad, and The Bogus. Thank you.